Hello and welcome to Restoration Church's Teaching of the Week. If this is your first time, welcome. So glad that you were able to join us. If you'd like to listen to past teachings or to learn a little bit more about restoration, you can go to restorationaz.org. And with that said, we hope you enjoy this week's teaching from Landon Myers. It's good to be with you this morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 9. All of my attention just uh, escaped my brain while Boney was praying because I was thinking if Boney taught every week, everything would be so much better. He has such a cool voice. I think from now on for uh, like the sermons that are online, we should just have Boney read it and it'll be way better. If you're new with us, uh, as Matt mentioned, my name is Landon, and I'm I'm thankful to be one of the the team members here with Restoration. And today, we are closing, uh, finishing up, concluding what we call one of our practices. And so it's the last week. uh, Practice groups still will be meeting this week, but this is the last teaching uh, throughout this series of what it looks like to practice being faithful citizens both to King Jesus and to the community Jesus has placed us in. And since this is the, the final Sunday, it's going to be a little bit different than our normal Sundays or teachings might be. We're going to read some of the scriptures. I'm also going to do kind of a really quick, fast-paced, almost bullet point recap of what we've discussed so far. So if you've been with us, hopefully it's helpful to kind of jog your memory of the different topics and and tangible practices we've encouraged you to embrace. If you're new, uh, hopefully you can grab a hold of a few of the things we've discussed and they might be helpful in the everyday stuff of your life. I'm going to begin by reading in Isaiah chapter 9. A little bit of context, Isaiah is a prophet. He's speaking to God's people, telling them about a future that will be brighter and better and good because their moment right now is bleak. They're looking, they're wanting something different because they've seen and heard, experienced and felt so much brokenness. And so that's the context. You've probably heard this passage before, perhaps around Christmas time. I'll begin reading in verse two. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For the trampling boot of battle and the bloody garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire." For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is a prophecy about Jesus coming to be born, to be our Savior. And not only that, as this describes, wonderful counselor, prince of peace, mighty God, eternal father, and with that, king. And this, what we see is that this baby who will be born named Jesus will become king forever. And this is the prophecy, and it's good news for a people stuck 
in darkness. There's this depiction of light, of people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the lands of darkness. And the, the scriptures have this theme pretty continuously of light versus darkness and that the light will triumph. And obviously, as we think about light, its impact is most often uh, understood visually. We can walk and interact with others because there's light. If it was pitch black darkness, then we couldn't do that because we couldn't see, which actually would implicate relationships. But light does so much more than that. If you walk outside on a beautiful, warm, sunny day, you can feel the sun, feel the sun, not just see what it does. You can feel the sun warm your body. That sun is critical for the tables that we sit at and dine on because as plants receive that sunlight, they grow and animals eat the plants and the food on our tables is directly tied to the rays of light that land on their leaves. There's so much that happens wherever the light touches. And I I just can't help but kind of get excited as I think about Jesus as this ray of sunlight, not just one, but wherever that light touches, his good happens. Wherever Jesus enters, if he enters into a room or a car or a building or a household, good happens there. Peace will be found as it's written on the, the wall. Broken stories will become beautiful. There will be reconciliation and forgiveness and cultivation of what is good and right and best. Where the presence of Jesus is, just like where the sun touches, where its light goes, everything begins to change. From the, the book of Isaiah, we can fast forward about seven, eight hundred years to the book of Matthew, to, to Jesus speaking, the one prophesied about. I want to go ahead and read this, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up onto the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, The poor in spirit are blessed, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Those who mourn are blessed, for they will be comforted. The gentle are blessed, for they will inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed, for they will be filled. The merciful are blessed, for they will be shown mercy. The pure in heart are blessed, for they will see God. The peacemakers are blessed, for they will be called sons of God. Those who are persecuted for righteousness are blessed, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice, because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled on by men. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Do you see the connection between the prophecy about Jesus, Jesus embraces that. He knows who he is. He declares that he is that king. And then he continues it and says that we are the light of the world, that we are the reflection, the continuation, the extension of that light so that where you walk, this victorious, healing, reconciling, forgiving, cultivating presence, warmth, and light of Jesus, it goes with you. 
as we follow Jesus, the Spirit of God enters us and begins to change everything. Not always how we want, not always in the timing we want, but where the presence of Jesus is found, good begins to happen. Jesus says we are the light. We're the extension of his love and his way and his victory. So what we've been talking about throughout this practice, Jesus says it this way here, you are the light of the world. We are called to be faithful to King Jesus, and we're called to be faithful to the community that King Jesus has placed us in. The neighborhoods we're in, the jobs we have, the places we go, where we eat, where we shop, it's in those places that he's called us to bring this light. Hope in the midst of hopelessness, generosity in the midst of a, a culture filled with hoarding and grabbing and keeping for self, an ability to enter the gray and make peace in the midst of animosity and violent anger and polarization. The way of Jesus is different, and we're supposed to exemplify that, to be a breath of fresh air in the midst of a culture often filled with darkness. Not a bad culture, but a, a culture certainly often filled with darkness. So we've been talking about the last six weeks, and, and so now I kind of want to provide a recap. I'm going to put a bunch of uh, the things that we've discussed over the past six weeks, and we'll, we'll talk through them briefly. If you weren't with us, these were founded in the books of Daniel and Jeremiah, Second Peter, all, all throughout the scriptures, really. But this is instruction, wisdom, for how we can interact as faithful citizens for both King Jesus and the community he's placed us in. We'll start with a few perspectives of exiles. Number one, we are where God has us, even if that is hard to believe or accept. Many of us that are, in my case, standing or sitting in this room don't like some of the things around us. You don't like the political agendas you're hearing about or who's currently in charge. You might disagree with your neighbors strongly or you get together at a Thanksgiving dinner and your family starts to talk about things and it leads to animosity. There's much we're not okay with, perhaps, in our cultural moments. But one of the things Daniel had to learn as an exile in Babylon is that God himself placed Daniel and his friends in that moment in a culture that was not following God. And he called them to be faithful there. And if God wanted a different plan, he could have easily done it because he's almighty and powerful and perfect and loving. But God chose them for that moment in that place at that time. And God has chosen you for this moment in this place at this time. If he wanted something different, he would have you somewhere different. That doesn't mean that God doesn't see the brokenness and hear our cries when we want something different. He does and he cares. But for a reason... He has us here now. Leads us to our next. It is not our responsibility to change the world. It is our calling to be faithful where we are now. You are not called, I am not called, to be Jesus. You can't be. We're not called to save everybody. You can't. That is his job. Or even to convince everybody about Jesus. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. We are called to be like Jesus, though, and to testify to him and to exemplify and model that the way of Jesus is actually good. And so there's both freedom and responsibility in this perspective. You have a job to do. You are called to be faithful citizens to King Jesus and our community. But it's not your job to save everything and everyone. Next on the list, something 
that is important. Faithfulness as exiles require constant discernment. It's not simple. This book is not a list of do's and don'ts, so there's some do's and don'ts in it. It's not a glossary or encyclopedia. When you're going, some, going through something, you can look up, what do I do in this situation? It doesn't work that way. We have to understand the character of God and what he would advise and lead us into in any given moment. Constant discernment is required for exiles. Move on to the next one. I think I, I missed one that I'll just state. Oh, no, I didn't. I'm out of order here. Um, Moving on now to like relational wisdom for exiles. We talked about this early on. We need to find a healthy tension in between isolation and merely Christian community and in between assimilation fully into the values of our culture. If we want to be wise and founded well in the way of Jesus and also valuable to our culture, we need to have both Christian community to guide us and to challenge us to walk with us through broken and beautiful moments. But we also need to be in the midst of our culture. This is what God has called us to And what we talked about is that you probably have a lean. You might find yourself listening to only Christian music and watching Christian movies and going to Christian schools and Christian everything, and you don't have non-Christian friends. That's a problem. At the same time, if you just happen to be here today and you don't have Christian circles to challenge you and walk with you, and you're just in the culture outside of a Sunday morning, that is also an issue. We're called to have both and to live into this type of tension. Next, as exiles, meaning we're a part of a culture that's not Christian, but we're allowed to live out our faith within it, we have to develop thick skin and a soft heart. And I think the best way to do that, the best way to do probably most of these is simply prayer. Ask the Spirit to give us thick skin, yet a soft heart. And what we talked about is that culturally, typically, what we see is the opposite. We have real thin skin. We're offended by everything, not just the church, but our culture at large. Everyone's mad and offended about everyone and everything. And we don't have soft hearts. We have thick hearts that are slow to love, slow to compassion, slow to forgiveness and reconciliation. And how beautiful would it be if we as the church can model this, that we can take offense, we can take injustices, we can handle the hard things that happen because Jesus has blessed us with thick skin. And simultaneously, we have soft hearts that have ears to hear the stories and hurts and desires of the people going on around us and eyes to see what's actually happening in their lives instead of just a self-reflection mirror in front of us all the time. A heart to feel what's going on in someone else's life. Thick skin, yet soft hearts. This is the way of Jesus. Another thing we have to recognize is that people are not projects or propositions Politically speaking, they are people. And I think oftentimes we as the church, not just restoration, but the church at large in our country, we get so distracted. We get passionate about something and we no longer see a person as a person. We see them as a project. Maybe they need saved. Maybe they need to change how they vote. Maybe they need to change this thing or that thing, often for our benefit, instead of seeing them how Jesus saw them, which is a brilliant human being he created and loved enough to give up his life for and loved enough to rise for. That doesn't mean that we don't need to be intentional in people's lives. We talked about voting, and that matters. It's good to have healthy discussions. It's good to have disagreements. But in that, we can never lose sight of what people are, which is people. Lastly, on the relational wisdom for exiles, we as the church 
have to shift from judging, shaming, even changing or avoiding people to being among them, interacting with them, seeking the welfare of those around us, sharing tables with them, and loving the people God places in our lives. This is almost word for word what the prophet Jeremiah instructed these exiles in Babylon to do. And that's the shift. Again, it has to do with isolation and assimilation and finding this healthy tension. After that, we continue to discuss how humble resistance, not harsh resistance, not prideful resistance, not knowing everything and telling everyone why you're right and they're wrong, but humble resistance is the way through the gray areas. We all know there's plenty of gray in our lives. There's plenty of gray in the church. There's plenty of gray in how we actually interpret the scriptures. We can often get really arrogant and think we understand this fully, and then you have to step back and realize that the printing press has not been around for that long. The the Bible, as we know it printed in every one of our hands or on a phone, has not been around this accessible for very long, let alone how many of us speak Greek or Hebrew. Not many. How many of us deeply understand the cultures that the scriptures were written in? And this isn't a discouragement. We should study the Bible. We can. God has provided incredible scholars and tools to do so, but it should actually give us humility as we seek to interpret something so beyond us. And the Spirit will work in that, but humble resistance is the way through the gray. Rick McKinley put it this way in um, a book that I've quoted. He says, confronting windows of opposition within a culture can be very challenging. If we go to war against the people who believe certain things are not sin, we misrepresent Jesus' love and compassion to them. But if we just ignore those issues, we misrepresent Jesus' truth and authority to them. This is the tightrope we walk. How do we do both faithfully? This is why being faithful to Jesus requires the sermon, because Jesus loves people enough to die for them, and he is the hope of the world. We hold this truth carefully and seek to carry it faithfully so that those who hear and see the gospel that we announce see and hear it accurately represented as good news. How many of the people that you know in your life that do not know Jesus think what you present to them, not just information that Jesus is Savior, but the life you live is actually good news? How many of them actually look at what Jesus has to offer and how that's impacted your life and they go, wow, that is good whether they agree or disagree with it. I think this is something that we need to consider. As we think through what it means to humbly resist, humble resistance requires a certain set of things, constant practice and discussion. When should, when should a child get their first iPhone? Maybe. Sexuality, sexual orientation, how do we have discussions on this? And the truth the Bible does declare about it. What about the biblical concept of gender? What about voting? There's many, many people in this room I can look out and know who disagrees with who. And guess what? That is okay. That is good. It is good for us to be able to follow Jesus and have disagreement, but pursue and love what is best for our neighbors. It requires deep awareness of where our values are actually coming from. I talk often here about how assumptions are dangerous. You might assume that your values are coming from the scriptures. They might not be. They might have been 
kind of covered in church tradition or family tradition and labeled as biblical, and they weren't. I've never gotten over when I read in a book a few years ago how in our own country, slave owners edited the scriptures to justify slavery and presented this as the gospel to their slaves they abused in the name of Jesus and in the name of the scriptures that they edited. We have to be so cautious about what we express and we need to know where it actually comes from. It's going to require significant humility that I think only comes through prayer. Then constant, again, here's this theme, living into a healthy relational tension in between isolation and assimilation. Humble resistance means that true humility opens doors. Pride in any form slams doors shut. We've all experienced this relationally. Again, back to the Thanksgiving dinner table. We can often get defensive and well up with pride because we want to make our point. And that type of pride, whether in the form of arrogance or insecurity, both are pride, will slam doors shut while humility opens doors and allows people to experience love. Humility is not weakness. Humility is not a lack of excellence. In fact, Humility requires a certain substantial amount of confidence to walk in and not have to prove yourself, to walk in and to hold strong, yet to do so lovingly and not make it all about you, not about ourselves. Last week, our second to last week in this practice up to today, um, and we talked about two key truths exiles becoming faithful citizens need to adopt. Number one, all good things come from Jesus. And number two, Christians of all people have the most to celebrate. All good things come from Jesus, and Christians of all people have the most to celebrate. What a chasm has been created when we tell people information about how Jesus saves and Jesus is good and Jesus is the answer and the reason for the season and all this other information we give them. And then our lives look deathly boring and judgmental and hypocritical. And they look at the chasm between what we say and what we live and what that means. And they go, you know what? Jesus must not actually be very good. Jesus must not actually be worthy of celebration. This is what I taught on last week. Uh, Friday night, I ended up going to a, uh, a comedy show in Phoenix. And in that, two to three different comedians referenced this indirectly. Not a Christian comedy show. And one of them, I'll never forget, it was impactful, said his parents became Christians in the, the 80s and 90s when he was born. And he said, the day I was born was the most Christian they've ever been, and then it slowly faded. And he said he wasn't allowed to do anything or say anything. And then he said, you know what? I think Jesus had more fun than me growing up. And it was funny. And people laughed. And I thought about it. How much of our world thinks Jesus is deathly boring? A whole lot, because things aren't funny unless there's truth in it. The image, the picture that we have painted of our Jesus is a sterile one. The image then that we've painted of our church, the lives we live, is a sterile one. It's not filled with life. It's not filled with laughter. It's not filled with feasting. By the way, you find those things all over the scriptures, because where Jesus is, good happens. It's not filled with healing and joy and celebrations and epic parties because all good things come from Jesus and because Christians of all people have the most to celebrate. A comedian stands on a stage in Phoenix and makes a joke 
about how he had a more boring life than Jesus himself. And the premise is Jesus' life must have been really, really dull. That means we're doing something wrong. There's a moment where we have to embrace this and go, we have to do better. And it's not like I'm saying you have to go starve yourself or just pray all day long. You have to throw really good parties. Like that should be fun. Eat really good food and laugh with people. Do things that are enjoyable and give all the glory to Jesus because he's the creator of all that is good. We have to as a church in the midst of a community that is non-Christian get to the place where we've embraced the good in life more than others. And you know what? That means we're probably going to error. You're going to do some things wrong. That's okay. Paul talks about this in Romans. We need to worry less about avoiding doing the wrong. We need to worry a little bit more. Press into embracing the good Jesus has already given. He died so that we would have life and life to the full. That's his words. I love Romans 15, 13. The 11, whoops, I think that's Matthew. There we go. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I just love this. When Jesus comes into our lives, we are called to, we will experience overflowing hope, not some hope. This is what we talked about last week. Not a half cup full. I talked about how my freshman year of college, I'd go to the cappuccino machine and I didn't know how to stop it and I just had to keep putting mugs there because I didn't know how to end it. I got through four. I was making fun of myself. This week in the office back there, I went to fill up the Keurig with some coffee and I grabbed a new mug. I didn't realize the new mug was smaller than the normal mugs I used. I pressed the button. Jeremy's there and it's filling and I'm like, oh no. It's happening again. (laughs) This is the picture, though. Our lives are meant to be overflowing with hope. Are they? No, because comedians are making fun of how boring Jesus is. It's got to shift. I love John Tyson says this. The more we practice the discipline of celebration, the more it will become an instinct. Instead of passing over moments of grace and redemption, we will mark them, and hope and love will seep into our cynical world. Christians are to be hope-embodied, hope dressed in clothes and human bodies walking around, dropping our kids off at school, entering our places of vocation, shopping in our grocery stores, our coffee shops, dining at our restaurants, hope walking on two legs, Hope breathing with the lungs that Jesus provided for us. Hope celebrating the good that he's provided in our world. Hope lamenting together when we go through things that are brutal, because we still will. But recognizing that Jesus and his hope triumphs any brokenness this world brings. Doesn't mean it's easy. But the light of Jesus is not just healing and saving. It's victorious. Take a second and turn around and look at this mural in the back of the room. We, we partnered in this practice uh, with a local artist named Brooke Benjamin. So you can see uh, a lot of Prescott, downtown. Prescott Valley has an arrow. Chino Valley does. The Dells, Willow Lake, Thumb Butte. This is where we live. If you look at that map and mural, you can probably point to your home or at least the direction of it. You can probably point to somewhere you shopped in the last week or maybe somewhere you ate. That's where Jesus calls us to be the light. I want to read with that in mind from Matthew chapter 28. Jesus is still referencing the same idea. We read this in verse 16. 
The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Then Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we wrap up three key things from this passage. First, it says, go, therefore. The the word go here, this verb participle means in your going. We've talked about this before. It does not mean that we might interpret it like that in our English language and culture, leave. It doesn't mean leave where you're at. Back to this map, it's not saying go somewhere else and do these things. It's saying in your going. When you drive down those streets, and you walk into those places, and you drop your kids off there, and you volunteer here in those places, in your going, and the everyday stuff of life is where we are called to have an impact. That doesn't mean that some people aren't called to be missionaries in foreign lands. That happens. But what Jesus is referring to here is about the everyday stuff of life, in your going. Second thing it says is teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. Why? Because it's good. But often what we've done as the church is we try to teach people what Jesus has commanded, his good way of life, by just describing it to them. Can you imagine I've got a a bunch, a bunch of young kids in school or entering school. If the way we taught them to read and write was just to describe the letters, said, here's the letter A. It's like a circle, and then it has a line on the bottom right part. Go ahead and draw that out for me. Here's the letter B. It's another circle, but a line on the top left. Like, that wouldn't work. And just say, go do it. This is what we do often in our Christianity. If you want to teach somebody something effectively, there's probably three key things to that. Number one, they first need to understand the why. If they don't think it's worth learning, they're probably not going to learn it. The why is that Jesus is good. The second thing that needs to happen is they need to have it modeled. A really good teacher shows them the letters and then traces it for them and gives them the example. Then they might even grab their hand and show them the motion and they go through all 26 letters for like four years until they get good at recognizing it. First, you explain the why. Then you model it. Third, you continue to walk with them in it. So often we just tell people about Jesus. And that just falls flat. We need to tell them why he's worth it. We then need to live lives that are not boring, that exemplify why he's good in every context. Why the way of Jesus is best for marriage, why the way of Jesus is best for business, why the way of Jesus is best for our physical health, for our spirituality, our relationships, everything. We have to explain why he's good, model it, and then walk with people. It can't be a distant, here's some information Now, good luck. Information alone does not lead to transformation. The last thing we see Jesus say here, crucial. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. And Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, in your going and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Look one more time at that map. Wherever you go, 
wherever you shop, wherever you eat, wherever you drive, wherever you walk, where you go, Jesus goes with you. That's the beauty of this gospel. He doesn't send you and say, good luck, come report to me in two months, and then I'll give you some more advice, some information to take with you along the way. He says, as you go, I'm calling you to be the light, the warmth, the healing presence, the victory in the midst of people's lives and brokenness and hurt and pain and confusions. And do not ever forget... I am with you always. Wherever we go on that map or if you're visiting this area, wherever you go in your everyday stuff of life, if you have Jesus, that means Jesus walks with you. And there's good, good news in that. As I I mentioned, as part of this practice, we had Brooke do this mural. We also purchased prints, individual prints of this, that if you're in a practice group, uh, we're going to give to you as a gift, as this kind of token, this inspiration that you can put it somewhere in your home. I actually got one a couple years ago, um, and it can spark and remind you of the call that we have to be faithful citizens, of the call that we have to be this warm, victorious, healing light in the places we're already going and that Jesus will be there with us always. We hope it can be a gift that symbolizes the things we've talked about, reminds you of them, spurs you on to continue embracing these things. And so we're going to take communion in just a moment. But before we do that, uh, if you're in a practice group, I'd love for you to go back. Jeremy and maybe Tessa will be in the back. If you're in a practice group, they'll be able to provide that print for you to take and have for yourself as this encouragement ongoing. At the same time, um, I'm going to ask that you grab the elements for communion. There's two stations here, and there's one in the back corner. Don't take communion yet. We're going to take it all together in just a moment. But I want those of you that are going to be receiving maps today to, to grab that ahead. So we're going to hold those two things hand in hand. Go ahead and uh, take time to grab the maps and the communion elements. Don't take it yet. Return to your seat, and we'll take communion together in a moment. All right, while the last few of you are grabbing the elements for communion or uh, your prints, I want to share this story that I found to be 
super inspiring. There's a woman in our church named Elaine, and she has done some just really incredible things. She's often an encouragement to me. And the other day, she was sharing how she was observing this elderly woman. I think she said she was in her 90s or something like that, exercising, walking down her street with weights. And she watched her continue to do this, and being as old as this woman was, she needed to take breaks periodically. And so she uh, found a rock wall to sit on, and she'd take a break there, and then she'd keep exercising. And eventually, uh, the owner of the house where that rock wall was put up a sign that said, do not sit. And this lady couldn't sit there. And that sounds kind of terrible. At the same time, I can understand it. I've built a few rock walls at my house, and when my kids jump on those things and it falls apart, it doesn't make me happy. It's a lot of work, right? I can understand that. But Elaine saw this, saw a need, saw a neighbor, saw something good happening, and she chose to do something about it, which I love. She didn't just like think about it or pray about what to do. She did something. She went to the store. She bought a chair. She bought flowers and planted them and an umbrella, and she painted on this seat, take a seat, so that her neighbor would have somewhere to sit as she exercised. In the midst of the everyday stuff of life, in her going, Elaine saw a moment to join in on the beauty of someone else's life, to do something small yet so significant. And I love this. I found it inspiring. These are the types of interactions we are called to have as the church, to see what's going on in someone's life already and to intersect, to bring good, a breath of fresh air, rest, whatever that looks like with the people in your life. Elaine didn't ignore this and just tell her some spiritual stuff. She saw something going on in her life and engaged and brought value. She then later had her over for dinner and shared a meal, and they sat at the table. There's beauty in that. These are the types of interactions that we're called to, and you can imagine the amount of stories that can grow and be multiplied if we take the job we have to be faithful citizens to both King Jesus and to our community to bring this light into the places we're already going, what can happen, and it is good. Before we take communion, I have a a prayer I'd like us to read together. If you're able, I'd love for you to stand with me in this time. We're going to take communion in a moment and to read this prayer and pray, request this to our God uh, for us as we close this series. Jesus, may we be a people who are faithful both to you and to our community. Guide us to enter the gray areas and give us wisdom to do so. Free us from self-worry and love by blessing us with humility and a deep awareness of your love for us. Grant us discernment and teach us how to humbly resist where resistance is needed. So much is broken around us. Help us to be honest in our laments in times of brokenness, knowing you hear us. Give us courage to step into storms we don't want to enter. Jesus, you are so good and so gracious. Thank you for all the good and beauty you have lavished upon us. Help us to celebrate you, each other, and your creation noticeably well. You are the God of joy and peace. May you cause hope to overflow in our lives so that it continuously pours out from our cup that you have filled. May it flow into the streets where our homes are found and the sidewalks we walk on, the desks we sit at, the tables we dine at, the places we shop, and the people we interact with. 
By your grace, may your love, way, and hope be known through us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.